as Taliban leadership have become the focus of global attention, they have made themselves out to be this kinder, gentler version of the group that came before. Taliban do not have any animosity against any person or individual. From our side, it is announced that all those people who have worked for the other side, for the government or for the previous government, they are all being forgiven. So an amnesty has been announced. And though they're saying that they harbor no animosity, that they'll forgive their opponents, many of us are wondering, is this really a new Taliban? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 23rd. Evacuations are continuing at the airport in Kabul. On Sunday, the U.S. military was able to fly out about 10,000 people. Another 6,000 people were able to leave on coalition planes. But the U.S. is running up against a serious deadline. The United States has promised that its troops will be out of the country by the end of August, so a little over a week from now. And yet there are still a very large number of people who need to be evacuated. We don't know exactly how many But certainly there are a large number of U.S. citizens, a large number of Afghans who helped the United States through the 20 years of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. And the United States has an obligation to get each and every one of those people who wants to leave out of there. But there is a time limit on it now. Griff Whitty is a national reporter for The Post and a former Kabul bureau chief. He says that the U.S. essentially has eight days to continue to run flights out of the country. After that, evacuations will get a lot riskier. The Taliban have said that they will not allow the United States to stay after August 31st, that they will regard that as a violation of the agreement that the Taliban and the U.S. made with one another. And so up until now... There has been a very uneasy level of cooperation between the Taliban and the U.S. at that airport, where the Taliban control what is outside the airport, the United States controls the military side of what's within the airport, and the two have, in a very general way, cooperated with each other. Not always well, not always happily, but there has been some level of cooperation. And what you could see after August 31st is that the Taliban start to take an actively hostile approach to what the U.S. is trying to do there if the U.S. is not finished by August 31st. And so I think that everyone in the U.S. bureaucracy and at the State Department, at the Pentagon, is going to be quite desperate over the next eight days to get everyone they can out of there and not risk going beyond that August 31st deadline. What the Taliban will do if the U.S. breaks this deadline is a big question. And this is one of many things the U.S. government is basically trying to guess on. How willing is the Taliban to follow through on their threats? And how willing are they to follow through on their promises? Those are questions that we're talking about with Griff today. But first, a little more about the situation at the airport. U.S. officials are insisting that American citizens can get through to the airport unimpeded. On Sunday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the administration is doing everything they can to bring Americans to safety. President, Secretary of Defense have been clear that uh, we will uh, do whatever it takes to get Americans 
uh, home and, uh, and out of harm's way. But what Griff has heard from people on the ground is much more complicated. Chaotic is almost not a strong enough word for it. There was no process in place. The evacuation was supposed to be an orderly one. There was supposed to be a system for making sure that American citizens, that Afghans who assisted the Americans in Afghanistan, uh, that other third country nationals were, were able to leave the country in an orderly way. And over the past week, we've seen anything but that. Day after day, the airport has descended into total anarchy. You have people who, thousands and thousands of people who have come to the airport. Some of them have been promised a flight out, but some of them are just going there because they're so desperate to leave, because they have so much fear for what will happen next in their country. And you see the Americans trying to create an environment where their planes can fly and where they can process people and get them out. And and you do see, in some respects, some progress made. I think the United States announced 10,000 people had, had been evacuated yesterday, which is certainly a, an improvement from where we were. Uh, but outside of the wire, outside of the perimeter of the airport, y- you still see these very chaotic scenes where people are so desperate to leave and the Taliban are out there whipping people and there are gunshots in the air and it is anything but the orderly evacuation that was was promised. So for the people who are successfully able to evacuate, especially the people who are Afghan citizens, where are they ending up and what happens to them after they leave? So the U.S. has been taking people to Doha, Qatar, and there is an airfield there where people have been housed. But really, it doesn't get a whole lot better afterwards. I mean, it, it gets better in the sense that it's much more secure, certainly. But it, but it remains a very haphazard process. You have a very large number of people being housed at this facility in Qatar where there isn't adequate access to things like bathrooms or charging stations for phones or making sure that people have places to sleep. Uh, the conditions there are pretty, pretty bad. The flow of people, the volume of people who are being sent through this system is just so clearly beyond the capacity for what the United States government had planned for. And you just see that this is a system that is not equipped to handle the number of people who are coming in. I think there is a very high priority on on making it smoother, on making it a better process, but it's, it's not a system that's working terribly well right now. After the break, we talk with Griff about the Taliban's history of promises and whether anyone should believe them. We'll be right back. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.
In the weeks since the Taliban has taken control of Afghanistan, there have been a lot of promises and glowing forecasts about what their future will look like. This idea that they have changed, that they will protect the rights of women, that they will refrain from violence and repair relations with foreign enemies. But people all over the world are wondering how much has changed, whether this really is a new Taliban. Griff was in Afghanistan in 2002, shortly after the U.S. invasion, and he saw those first months of what it was like after the Taliban had left. There was this mood of real euphoria and joy on the streets of Kabul then, and a sense of new beginnings. It was springtime, but it it literally felt like springtime in terms of the emotions of the people. When I talked with people in the city, they would tell me, this is a country that has been at war for 20 years Uh, But it's over now, and we're going to have peace in this country. And they were particularly relieved that the Taliban were gone, because for the people of Kabul, the Taliban were an alien invading force, and they were never accepted there by a very large percentage of the people. And they were regarded as extraordinarily cruel, and people who uh, meted out very harsh punishments and brooked absolutely no opposition. And they did not tolerate a free press. They did not allow for women's rights. They persecuted minorities, especially the Hazara community, the minority Shia community of Afghanistan. And so when they left and they really and truly were gone, they they left the city, they left all cities of Afghanistan and, and retreated into the hills Uh, there was a sense of extreme relief and of optimism about the future. So it's been almost two decades since those beginning stages of the war. How has that reputation of the Taliban started to change? Well, I think for a very large number of Afghans, they have the same reputation that they always had. They are regarded as, as cruel, as vicious, intent on killing and attacking their way into power. But the Taliban have tried to rehabilitate their image in these 20 years. And what you've particularly seen since they took over in Kabul last week is they have been trying to tell the world, we are not the same Taliban that we were before. We are different now. We have changed. We have learned from our last experience in power. And if you have preconceptions about who we are and what we're about, we're not that. And that is very much the message that you see emanating from the top leadership of the movement right now, this sense that, yes, we know we have a a pretty horrid reputation internationally, but it's been 20 years and we've learned a thing or two. And are you seeing the international community buying that? believing that this is a Taliban that is fundamentally different from 20 years ago? I think the international community doesn't know what to think. I mean, first of all, I think that the United States, the West, are, are almost exclusively focused at this point on getting their people out of Afghanistan, of, of evacuating people via the airport. But I think that also they really don't know what this group has in mind. They don't know what the Taliban intend. We spoke last week to a very senior U.S. official who had just watched the Taliban spokesman give this extremely dramatic press conference in Kabul. The spokesman's name is Zahibullah Mujahid. 
And he gave this press conference in which he unveiled himself to the world for the first time. He's been the voice of the Taliban for years, but his face was an utter mystery. Uh, no one outside of the, the organization had seen his face because in the media appearances that he did, it was always covered or blurred. And his message at that press conference was an extremely conciliatory one. He said, we in the Taliban, we are going to offer a, an amnesty to the people who fought us and opposed us. Uh, we are not going to persecute minorities. We are going to make sure that women's rights are protected. Uh, women will be afforded all their rights, uh, whether it is in work or other activities, because women are a key part of society. And uh, we are guaranteeing all their rights within the limits of Islam. He gave this press conference in which he said all of the things that the international community wants to hear. Uh, but we spoke to this U.S. official afterwards, and he said, we don't know what to make of it. The optimistic take is that they really have learned some lessons from their last run in power, and they're going to be different this time. The pessimistic take is that this is a group that has fundamentally not changed. They are a bunch of ideologues. They have a very strict, very well-defined interpretation of Islam, and that it would be foolish to expect anything different. So to help people understand this group that is now in control of Afghanistan, can you explain a little bit more about who are the Taliban? Like, is this a religious group? Is this a political group? How should we think about them as an entity? So the Taliban is a little over a quarter century old. They were founded in 1994. Really, they rose out of an incredibly combustible moment in Afghanistan's history. Obviously, all 40 years uh, of, of Afghanistan's recent history have been very uh, violent and, and combustible. There's There's been almost continuous war that entire time. But the period of the mid-90s was uniquely chaotic and destructive. Uh, it was a time when the Soviets had left, there was a vacuum, and there was all-out civil war in the country. And the Taliban emerged as a new faction that said, essentially, we are going to rise above the various factions that are fighting one another, and we are going to unify the country under Islamic law. And we are going to end the corruption, we're going to end the warfare that has completely destroyed the country, and we're going to bring security and peace. And and so what made them so popular? Like, if they were able to get so much control over the country, I mean, obviously some people must have supported them. So what were the things that they were doing that were successful? So this was a moment where there was lawlessness in Afghanistan and there was extreme corruption. There was extreme uh, lack of government services, of government support for anything. The government basically existed to, to fight off other factions and the Taliban came and started conquering cities and saying, we're going to bring justice, we're going to bring security, we are going to bring peace, and we are going to keep you safe. And in, in certain respects, they did. They brought uh, security, certainly. It was security at the expense of liberty and at the expense of justice. But they promised people, we will bring some order to your life. 
and we will bring out of this extreme disorder, we will bring some order to, to this country. In a certain fashion, that is what they did. They conquered Kabul in 1996, and they imposed their very harsh views about Islam. They cut off the hands of criminals. They executed people who were suspected of crimes that in nearly every other country would not merit capital punishment, basically imposed a justice system in a country where there was none. And so how are the Taliban framing this idea that some of these tenets of what they believe in are no longer what they believe? Like if a central part of the Taliban has been capital punishment for minor crimes, um, incredibly harsh treatment toward Afghan people, like what has changed? Well, a very resonant symbol of what has changed came last week when a senior Taliban leader gave an interview to Tolo News, which is the dominant uh, Afghan news network. And the journalist that Tolo chose to conduct that interview was a woman. The Taliban leader agreed to do the interview with a woman, uh, which is something that you never would have seen the Taliban do 20 years ago. What I think we're seeing, however, is that a lot of times the rhetoric is not matched by the reality. You have these very symbolic gestures on the part of the Taliban, but you also have in everything that they're saying some real caveats. They have not spelled out exactly how far they're going to be able to go or be willing to go in terms of embracing the kinds of women's rights that we've seen in Afghanistan for the last 20 years since the Taliban were toppled. Taliban have also said, we are going to give everyone an amnesty and we are not going to persecute the people who opposed us in the past. They say, if you fought us for the last 20 years, we're, we're going to let bygones be bygones. We forgive you hmm. and we will not come after you. But just in the last 24 hours, they've revised that and they've said, we are not going to go after you unless you are a troublemaker. Hmm. And the definition of what a troublemaker is has been left, of course, up to the Taliban to decide. Who do you think in Afghanistan stands to gain from the Taliban being back in power? I, I think it's very clear that the Taliban have genuine support in Afghanistan and that that is not universal by any stretch. There are huge numbers of people who who hate the Taliban, who oppose the Taliban. But the people who really oppose the Taliban are largely concentrated in the cities. And in the countryside, it is a different story. There are perceptions that the t last 20 years of U.S.-led occupation, as people see it, uh, has not brought them anything except for airstrikes and night raids and corruption and the empowerment of local warlords who don't have the interests of the people at heart. And so the Taliban might seem like a relief to them, that they are going to eliminate corruption, that they're going to eliminate these airstrikes that have killed civilians, these night raids that terrify people. The government that has been in power, the government that the United States backed, was not a loved government. 
this is a government that is associated very strongly with corruption, with incompetence, uh, with an inability to provide services to the people. And for all of the progress, and there, and there has been some very real progress in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, there is also a sense that the country was stagnant and that the government was not serving the people very well. And so our reporters on the ground have talked to people even in Kabul in recent days who have said, we're happy that the Taliban have taken over. This is a fresh start. This might be something different. Whether they are saying that because they genuinely admire the Taliban or because they're terrified for their lives and they think that it's not going to be permissible to criticize this group, we don't know. I was in Afghanistan at a time when the Taliban had just been displaced and a, a U.S.-led government had been uh, put in place there and, and people were seeking relief from years and years of conflict and, and perhaps hoping for something better. And I think that that's, for some people, where they are today. Uh, just this hope that somehow this country that has been so unlucky in so many ways and has been just absolutely ruined and devastated through 40 years of, of almost continuous warfare, that maybe the Taliban will, will bring an end to that somehow. And this country can, can finally have a measure of stability. Now, whether that is a realistic hope or whether that is a hope in vain, I, I don't think we can know that yet. But certainly one understands the impulse to want to believe that something better will come of this. Griff Whitty is a national reporter for The Post and a former Kabul bureau chief. This story was produced by Alexis Diao. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. On Monday morning, the FDA elevated its approval of Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine from emergency to full approval. What took time is that we actually go and we monitor a percentage of the sites where the clinical trials were conducted in order to make sure that the data that was collected was collected accuracy and matches what was submitted to the agency. We go and we inspect the facilities um, that are making the product and making sure that they meet our high quality standards. And, and doing those inspections in the middle of a pandemic um, were not trivial. This could mean that a lot more private businesses will require their employees to get the shot. We'll have more on that on the show later this week and whether this could be the thing that finally makes more people willing to get vaccinated. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. 
In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.